0: Many times, companies are started when a founder is faced with a problem that they're trying to solve, or there is some kind of aha moment that is pivotal in the journey. But other times, founders like Ted Blosser, the CEO and co-founder of WorkRamp, are intentional in determining the right company with the right fit and the right vision. In this episode of the Revenue Engine podcast, Ted shares his story of how he built his company with an overall vision, but also with a strategy and a plan for execution, which he shares in a baseball analogy with innings. Ted also shares so many great learnings and actionable insights around building an amazing company, helping your team and your customers reach their full potential through learning and accelerating revenue through product differentiation and being laser focused on your customers. Today's podcast is brought to you by outreach.io. Outreach is the number one sales engagement platform on the market today for a reason, and it's not even a close race. It's a must have for any revenue team looking to optimize and scale their business. The platform offers multiple features, including sales engagement, conversational intelligence, and AI-powered revenue forecasting that help teams engage with leads more effectively. Outreach helps sales reps and account managers to not only close deals, but to close more deals faster. Visit click.outreach.io slash to schedule an outreach demo today. So please take a listen and learn from this authentic, inspirational leader and all around nice guy. So super, super excited to be here today with Ted Blosser, the co-founder and CEO of WorkRamp. For anyone who's not familiar with WorkRamp, WorkRamp is the all-in-one learning management system that allows you to build content and deploy training to your internal teams, your customers, and your partners all on one platform. So welcome, Ted, and thank you so much for joining me. I'm super excited to share your story and also learn from you.
1: Excited to be here, Rosla. Hopefully you don't hear, I just had a new baby, so hopefully you don't hear a crying (laughs) baby in the background in this recording.
0: No problem at all. I have two dogs and one dog always makes an appearance on the podcast. So no problem at all.
1: Nice. <laughs> and congratulations
0: <laughs> on the new baby. Super excited. Thanks.
1: Thanks. It's Our third. So, so not our first time. So oh. we're, we're getting through it.
0: That's awesome. Well, and yeah, <laughs> I have a stories to tell you on that one. I have three as well. So of course, mine are older, but definitely we'll have to share some more stories there too. So let's start by talking a little bit about your journey before WorkRamp. All right? Can you share a little bit more about your backstory? You know, I know you were an account executive, you were a product manager, yeah. you've done kind of different things. So, if you can share a little bit about that, that'd be great.
1: Yeah, for sure. So, I personally have a pretty eclectic background. Coming out of college, I actually studied electrical engineering, and then randomly got into sales after Santa Clara, after I graduated Santa Clara University. So, I did sales at Cisco. Great training ground. This was back in the day when big tech companies would send you to go get trained for about a year. Um, in some remote site and then come back into the field. So that was really fun. And then from Cisco, I actually went and did a failed startup. So that was my first startup experience. And then when I came out of that, I said, hey, I need to go learn how to really do this whole startup thing. Because I wanted to do another company, which ended up becoming WorkRamp. And because of that, I knew I had to build a broad skill set. So the first thing I did was, was get it back into sales, but more on the SaaS side. So I'd never done SaaS sales Mm -hmm. And then afterwards, I actually went into product management because I knew I had to learn how to build products. Nights and weekends, I was coding up sites just for fun because I wanted to learn development and I had a technical background from school. And so I I felt like, hey, I had all this experience leading up to starting a company like WorkRamp. And so that was the background. That was a nice journey, which took, took, let's see how many years. It took about, about almost nine, 10 years to... To really wow. get the ec- eclectic experience that I talked about before uh, starting Workramp itself, and it's definitely given me some a leg up while while founding uh, Workramp.
0: That's awesome. That's awesome. So uh, oftentimes, you know, companies get started. You know, when a founder is faced with a problem that they're trying to solve, or maybe there's some kind of aha moment, right, or some event that happens. Was this the case with Workramp, yep. and kind of what led you to starting the company?
1: You know, I, sometimes I wish that was the case. It wasn't like <laughs> I had, I grew up with, with parents that were professors and I loved the education category or, or I experienced something uh, really visceral in my, in my childhood, but it wasn't like that. It was actually more when I, when I failed at my first startup and I said, Hey, I want to go learn how to do this and go start another startup. So when I was at box, that was where I was learning kind of the SaaS market. I said, hey, if I want to start a company again, I have two criteria. And for me, the first criteria, which is actually probably the most important criteria, was to build an awesome company. And so it was really about bringing people on board, building the culture, building just a really great organization where people would, I would call it, quote unquote, skip into work every day. So that's kind of my (laughs) number one criteria. And then the second criteria was really looking for a gigantic market that we felt was underserved, had bad players in it, was in the SaaS space, because we knew SaaS really well, that we can actually add a differentiated experience with it. So we were actually on the hunt for a market like that. And when we stumbled upon mm-hmm. the learning market, because we looked at a lot of markets, we said, hey, this is the market. This, this market almost has an infinite, a total addressable market. The players in here are really bad and really stodgy, and every company needs it, and we can we can offer a big impact. So we kind of married those things, those two things together. We found mm. our domain name online in 2015 and then <laughs> went off and started WorkRamp. So that's kind of the, the origin story of, hey, it wasn't really an aha moment. It was really, hey, what was our criteria? Mm.
0: Can we satisfy
1: that criteria? And that's where uh, WorkRamp was born out of.
0: Oh, I love that. It's a very, actually very thoughtful and very diligent kind of calculated way of creating Creating a company. So now, like almost six, I guess it's about, about six years, right? So six years later, how yep. has your vision, I guess, for the company evolved? And, you know, what does that look like? Has it changed?
1: Yeah, that's a that's a great question. I would say um it's funny. I, we are six years old, but I like to say we're about three years old because it took us a while to get to that kind of infamous product market fit. So it took us a while to get to product market fit. And but the whole time it was funny, we did a um we did a kickoff the other, other month, and I actually found a picture. I had all these stickies uh, uh, above my desk. Found a picture from 2015, and the vision was essentially the same empower every employee to reach their full potential through learning. I think it's a slightly different variation of that over the years, but the vision was always the same. Now, the journey to get there has kind of has shifted and moved. And Mm -hmm. so, and what we really realized when we hit product market fit, and this is the advice I give to startup founders, is that you might have a grand vision, but you need to have a strategy and then you need to have execution on how to get there. So that essentially says, hey, how do you start small, even though you have a great vision and then grow to that larger vision? So for us, the way that played out was, hey, we always had this big vision, but we need to start small. So we actually started onboarding and we actually started in Mm go-to-market teams once we got a good enough brand recognition, good enough traction, then we expanded to support teams. Then we expanded to HR and LD teams. And then mm-hmm. two years ago, we expanded all the way out to customer education and partner education. And so we always knew that our, our long-term vision was the same. We empower all professionals to reach their full potential, but the steps mm-hmm. to get there was essentially a journey. And we still have a, I call it, we're in inning three, uh, basically nine <laughs> right now, where and I, I'm very specific with that, with the team that hey, we're still in early innings here. There's still a lot of things we need to do to achieve our long-term vision.
0: Yeah. So as part of that story, you were sharing that quote, right? Around work ramp empowers every professional to reach their full potential through learning. And I think continuous learning yeah. and growth, right? Is incredibly important, right? To us as you know personally as yeah. well as professionally, but especially in building teams, right? Teams that are going to be successful today yes. and can scale for tomorrow. So when we talk about revenue teams, yes. which is kind of where you focused initially early on in the journey, yes. around especially around sales, right? Enablement is just like a key strategic differentiator, right? In your organization's yes. ability to accelerate revenue. So, what have you seen, I guess, in the market in terms of trends around sort of this enablement of go-to-market, and how have you seen it evolve, and kind of where do you see it going?
1: Yeah, that's a that's a great question. Um, I would say. I'll take I'll take one step back actually and talk about it at the organizational level and I'll kind of feed it back into kind of enablement teams. I think there's there's three big trends we see with all companies and this is kind of across the whole org and it actually feeds really well into enablement orgs. And so there's really three things. One is every company we see is going through massive digital transformation. And so digital transformation really means everything in their business is getting upended right now. It's, it's how do you serve customers is getting upended. How you communicate internally is getting upended. How you recruit talents getting upended. Your business processes, even the paper that used to flow in office is getting upended. And so that's a big thing happening and all companies need to figure out how to do that. The second big thing is remote centric work. And so it doesn't mean every company needs to go remote first world. But it really means, hey, are you ready to have remote workers in your staff and in your operations? So COVID brought that on, as we know. But hey, how do we continue pushing remote-centric, whether that is full-time remote for everybody or, hey, you just have some offices that are remote. Everyone needs to figure that out. Mm. And then lastly, the, this is the probably biggest trend of the three, is the war for talent. And so we know mm. over the next decade that having the best people on board, the best sales reps, the best sales managers, every company that what you're really competing for over is not really money anymore because money is actually easy to come by or funding, but it's really around how do you get enough people in the door to help further the mission and the vision. So those are kind of the big three macro trends and the common theme across all three of those, one of the highest leverage activities you can do as Andy Grove said, and always the paranoid survive that for a manager, the highest leverage activity you can do is really training. And so, and, mm-hmm. enabling. And when you think about those three trends, enabling your people is probably the biggest thing you can do for all three of those trends. For digital transformation, you have all these new processes. You got to get people like, for example, if you roll out a new Salesforce process for digital transformation, you better make sure your people know how to do <laughs> it or else it doesn't matter. The war for talent, you have to make sure that, hey, people are progressing in their career and they're getting trained to go from SDR to BDR to AE, right? And then that Mm. remote-centric work, you can't tap someone on the shoulder and be like, hey, how do I enter in this, this deal correctly? Or, hey, I got this competitor in this deal, what do I do? And that's all about training as well. And So that's the big trend we're seeing is that when I talk to other CEOs is, hey, a lot of this is, hey, I need to get the right people in the door. I need to get them trained up. I need to get them enabled. And so that's, that's the big trend. I kind of answered your question in a roundabout way, but that's the that we're seeing overall.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And that war for talent really resonates (laughs) with me right now as we're trying to, as I'm trying to build out a team, right. And then getting those folks that you have already in your current team Uh, enabled and sort of, uh, you know, scaled, right? Upscale them basically and get them to where they want to go. So yeah. And you're spot on. I
1: was talking to this leader the other day. He's like, Ted, money isn't, money ain't a thing is what he said. (laughs) Um, He's like, the biggest problem is really not, not having headcount open or not the pay. It's about, hey, how can you attract the right people right now? It's super hard. Whereas a year ago is all about some of the tactical things. Now it's just, I just need to get someone in the door that's the right fit for the role.
0: Yeah. Yeah. 100%. So so this may kind of feed into this a little bit, but what are some of the biggest mistakes that you're seeing revenue teams making in sort of their approach to enablement and to training and some of the things that you talked about?
1: Yeah. You know, it's kind of funny. I, I'm learning a lot. So we hired in Stephanie Middles. She's actually mm-hmm. a former customer of ours and now she's, she a leads friend of mine as she's well. amazing. Yeah.
0: Yeah. We together. So, she's teaching
1: me. <laughs> oh, that's right. Okay. Yeah. She, she's taught me so much about enablement because she's seen it so many times. And I would say there's two, two big mistakes and she's even educating me on these mistakes because we we could easily step into them. Um, one mistake, which is actually, so it's actually on two ends of the spectrum that we see. So one is you either don't give enablement enough power. And I don't know if you've seen this where mm-hmm. you kind of stick it or tuck it under product marketing. It's more of an afterthought. You hire it probably once you hit 50 sales reps, it's like, oh yeah, mm-hmm. we probably need someone to help with onboarding. And and you can easily see, hey, where are they placed in the organization? How much power they have? How senior of a role are you hiring? I'll see a lot of orgs who say, hey, we need enablement. And they just go hire a really junior person, maybe mm-hmm. switching from the BDR ranks into enablement because they want yes. to. And so that's kind of one end of the spectrum. I actually see that mistake a lot. And I actually see the other end of the spectrum, which is not so much where it's like, hey, I'm hiring and giving them too much power enablement, but it's more I'm hiring an enablement. Maybe it's the right level person, like a director to start but they have unrealistic expectations and they give them too much. Mm -hmm. So they basically say, hey, I'm going to throw everything in the kitchen sink in this enablement role Mm -hmm. because I have nowhere else to place it. And so they might give internal events to enablement. They might say, hey, I have a competition problem. Go solve that. Or they might say, hey, I have this more of a rev ops problem. Go solve that. And just literally everything, even PMM type of activities, they'll toss their way. And so one thing Stephanie has taught me is like, hey, every quarter, a director of enablement can maybe handle one, two big initiatives every quarter, right? And so it's it's important to make sure that you prioritize their time and that you mm-hmm. don't give them too much stuff that's outside their scope. So those are the two classic mistakes I see, which is too junior and you just don't have the right person in place or or you're not investing in it enough, or mm-hmm. you get it, the right person in place and you just overwhelm them. And they're like, I can't be successful with all this stuff. So those are probably the two biggest mistakes I see with customers and you kind of want I think the perfect blend and I think Stephanie is doing this here at Workramp is you have the right person who's elevated she reports directly to essentially our VP of Red mm-hmm. Rocky Pat and she's very good at saying hey I'm going to take off these two take down these two big priorities I have a few other yeah. things cooking but here are the two big things I'm doing for the course. That's
0: awesome. That's really great advice and definitely very useful for sure. So let's talk a little bit more. You know, I think a lot of enablement offerings, you know, they focus on just sales, right? And as we talked about, your platform really focuses on all corporate learning internally and externally. Yeah. Right. So can you share a little bit more? You talked about the innings and kind of the the longer roadmap of where you need to go, but yeah. maybe share a little bit more about your vision there. You know, how has that kind of product differentiation really helped WorkRamp be successful, right? Around accelerating revenue growth and obviously expanding within your customer base. Yeah,
1: for sure. For sure. You know, it's really interesting. We we had this fork in the road a couple of years ago and, and we looked at the learning corporate learning space, which is gigantic, as I mentioned before. And we, we basically said, hey, this, this fork in the road, um, you're either going to go heavy into sales LMS and kind of build a niche solution for sales and go to market, or what you do is you consolidate all the learning happening across an organization. Still very strong in sales, but you bring together other departments and an org to have a more cohesive story. As you can guess, we chose the latter route, and we call this the learning center of excellence. And we have this nice chart we show to clients, uh, both, both prospects and clients that say, that shows, hey, you have all these different learning pockets in the org. You have learning on the go-to-market team. You have learning with your customers and partners. You have learning in your HR team, right? And everyone is speaking a different language, different subject matter experts, contents getting out of date or, or not being uh, used properly. And what the Learning Center of Excellence does is it consolidates your learning content, your learning philosophy, and most importantly, importantly, your learning culture within an organization. So that's why we call it the Learning Center of Excellence. So we push our customers to say, hey, everyone does have a different learning need. The way uh, HR wants to do learning, which is very self-serve, very focused on retention versus how sales does it, which is, hey, I need to go sell my product more efficiently. (laughs) They have different needs. We want to have a product that serves both needs, but has a fundamental underlying layer that actually allows those teams to collaborate with each other. And that spans all the way out to your customers, right? The same content Mm -hmm. you're training your technical SEs on, your technical customers probably want that same content too. And so that's a big trend that we're seeing on the market. So it's essentially a bundling that you're seeing. You hear a lot about the unbundling and bundling. We think we're moving into a bundling phase and we want to be at the forefront of the bundling of learning. And we're calling that the Learning Center of Excellence. And it has a huge impact because go-to-market can then have even more resources at at, uh, play if it's part of this broader kind of learning center of excellence within a company.
0: Got it. Got it. Yeah. So you touched a little bit about kind of what customers are looking for. So I want to talk a little bit more about customers, right? As we were talking about probably a little bit before we started recording, but, you know, buyers, we're looking to consolidate. We're expecting a lot more. Companies don't want a vendor. They want, they need a partner, right? Someone who's going to really help them be successful. And I know WorkRamp was the recipient of a number of G2 awards, both in HR software and in sales. Software. And I love G2 because it is from the customer's perspective, right? These are actually users who submit these reviews. So I think that those awards are always very meaningful, right? When you hear directly. Having so many innovative brands as customers, right? You've got Box, you've got Outreach and Reddit and Lattice and all these other customers that are, you know, leveraging your solution and partnering with you. You know, what is your philosophy, right? Really around driving customer success, driving that value. And how has that contributed to revenue acceleration?
1: Yeah, that's a that's a great question. And one one of our four key values, um, and we truly live and breathe it, is is a customer focus. And a lot of companies say that, uh, but not mm. everyone kind of walks the walk. I've been at companies that say that, and it's like you have a customer issue, you kind of sweep it under the rug a little bit. Uh, but for us, we truly believe it. I would say there's a few things that contribute to at least our customer success so far. One is we we try to meet and talk with as many customers as we can to really drive our roadmap. And so it's actually the, the uh, counter argument to the famous kind of Steve Jobs quote of like, hey, if I just listened to my customers, I would have a faster horse. I would build a faster <laughs> horse. Uh, but we actually kind of live and breathe that where, hey, we listen to our customers a ton. So like Personally, I, I I adhere to the philosophies of like a Jason Lemkin and a Mark Benioff that constantly talk about hey executives especially in this virtual world get in front of as many customers as you can hear about their pain points. I would say when I look at my schedule in the day, I get a ton of energy when I see that customer call on my schedule, and I know I have to prep for it, but I come out of that with so much more energy and so many so many ideas. So that's probably probably the first thing is hey get in front of as many customers as you can. And that's not just the executive team, but that's all the way on down. Don't just send that email. Don't just send that Slack message on our VIP channel, but it's, hey, get in front of your customers and really engage with them. Probably another another big thing is, I would call it structural programs to make customers successful. So I used to, I used to back in the day, think that our CS team, as an example, could just do it all. I would hire Superwoman or Superman or Superperson CS CSMs and say, hey, do implementations, do the technical calls, do the renewals, do the QBRs, you're great, right? <laughs> and what I realized is that's actually a disservice to clients. And mm-hmm. what we realize is that if you can specialize and do parts of the customer lifecycle well, the customers will greatly benefit from that. A great example is when we split up our CSM team into essentially the implementations team instructional design team and what we call client outcomes team focus on the outcomes the customers want to drive. When we saw that split, we saw a dramatic increase in our gross retention rates in our net retention rates or our our upsells as well, our customer happiness and CSAT scores. So there's a lot of structural things that help and those get complemented with things um, like, especially in your world, dashboarding, metrics, insights into how those customers are doing and how each team is doing. So for example, we track down to the day how long it takes for our average implementation time. And then probably one last big thing on customer success I like to bring up is, and this was actually, uh, I picked up the idea from uh, David Sachs, the head of Craft Ventures. He wrote this really cool blog post. um, This was about 18 months ago about what he calls um, the cadence. And the cadence revolves, it's basically how to operate a SaaS startup. Mm -hmm. And it revolves around what we call the lightning strike. And so the lightning strike is like your Apple keynote for your company and also for your customers. And what's really cool about this is his his theory, David Sachs's theory was that hey, if you innovate every quarter and at minimum have a touch point with your customers every quarter around your product, around your customer success, they're gonna be extremely well taken care of and that will compound. And so what we've done as a company, we've done this now six quarters for six quarters is every quarter Literally on the dot, in the middle of the quarter, we will have what we call a, a lightning strike event. Mm-hmm. And this is where we invite all of our customers to this. We have a nice live stream and we show them, hey, what's our vision of the world? We've been listening to you. Here's the product we built and let's build even better relationships moving forward. And we've gotten mm-hmm. rave reviews from that. So hopefully those are, those are three three ideas for the audience to think through that really say, hey, how do you actually push the needle on customer success? For us talking customers, the kind of specialization as well, and then things like the lightning strike have really helped.
0: That's awesome. Thank you for sharing that. I think that's super helpful. I think that's definitely going to give some ideas to folks who are listening, who maybe didn't think about, you know, things that they probably or may have thought about, but never really implemented and didn't really understand the value. So that's super helpful. Thank you. You know, as I think about the revenue engine, the podcast, right? I'm always hoping that others will learn, right? How to accelerate revenue growth and power that revenue engine. So a lot of the tips that you've given around, you know, customer success, around enablement, all of these around even how to build a business, right? All of those things are super valuable. So thank you for sharing that. Um, You know, as a CEO and founder, you know, is there anything that you wish maybe you knew earlier? I mean, you talked about kind of the failed, first failed startup, and I think you took those learnings in already, but is there anything that you might you know, you wish you knew earlier or maybe you might do differently, you know, if you could do it all over again?
1: Yeah, I would say if I could do it all over again, you almost, you almost can't avoid this. I, I talk about the, have you have you heard of the kind of startup trough of disillusionment? Have you seen that chart uh, where it's <laughs> like a startup starts and it, it drops off? And this is something that Paul Graham kind of pioneered where it's like, hey, you start a startup, it's super exciting, and you get a, that TechCrunch <laughs> article for your first funding, and you just drop off a cliff, and that's called the trough of disillusionment, and then you kind of yeah. crawl your way back and into um, an actual company. And so <laughs> those that definitely happened to us. That was about two to three years in the early days of Warcramp. And I think one of the things that we did wrong was prematurely thinking we had product market fit and prematurely scaling. And so one of the things I always tell founders is like, hey, you listen to all these cool startup podcasts, you're gonna go going through Y Combinator like we did, and you just think you're onto something, you gotta get on other podcasts, you gotta get loud on LinkedIn, and you gotta hire people, spend that money. And you need to take like an honest look at yourself and say, Hey, is what I'm building the correct thing? And if if not, how do you pivot to the correct thing or how do you keep experimenting to get there? And I've seen founders who kind of go index too too much in one direction or the other. One that can't stick with an idea. So they're jumping around every every week you talk to them. And then some that are just too stubborn about their original idea. You need to find a fine balance. And so if I if I had to do it again was would be, and there's there were some hires we made that we made and I almost feel bad for those because we just weren't ready as a company. I almost did them a disservice for hiring them. But but I wish looking back on it that was very true to ourselves on product market fit. And when we are ready to scale. And, and when you do feel it, you will feel it. There's a night and day difference of, hey, pushing a product on the market and for it getting pulled. And so we're definitely, mm. uh, when we, in 2018 is when we really started to get pulled. And that was the one thing I could tell my younger self is, is, hey, don't prematurely scale. Don't hire people. Don't spend money until you figure out, hey, what do customers really want? What is their demand for? And then once you get there, then you could scale. What sh- is shaved that? Three years, and a lot of gray hair uh, <laughs> uh, off my head here uh, if, I, if I had taken that advice earlier.
0: I love that. I love that. That's really good advice. So thank you so much for joining me, Ted. But as we wrap up, and before I let you go, I was ask all of the guests two things. One is, what is that one thing about Ted that others would be surprised to learn? And two, mm. what is the one thing that you want everyone to know about you? And what I found is that sometimes it's the same thing <laughs> when I talk to folks, but so, so one is, you know, something that others might be surprised to learn about you and the other is what is it, something that you really want people to know about you and take away?
1: Yeah. So one, one surprising thing about me, I'll, I'll talk about the, both maybe in a professional context you probably find some <laughs> non-professional stuff, like my, my, my sports and hobbies that you can dig up, but professionally one one kind of thing that's really interesting is I love building things. So A lot of people don't know, but I coded up the first version of WorkRamp. And I always tell my wife, oh. um, and even, even during our honeymoon, uh, one of my <laughs> favorite things to do is code. And oh. so if I could retire on a beach one day when I'm in my 60s, I'd be coding <laughs> on the beach. And so it kind of comes back to my passion where... Where I love building products, I love getting into the weeds, and even even now today, I'll, I'll even ask the engineer who just built a feature, "Hey, what would you use as a library? <laughs> or, hey, why did you build it build it that way?" And so that's probably one of my favorite things to do is build things, and now now we get to do it at scale with customers. To your to your second point it's probably different. I think I think the one thing that I love people to know about me is really I love leading. I think there's a lot of people who kind of stumble into the co position or might reluctantly take it but i i genuinely love leading and it's really from from when i started my professional career i was always reading leadership books i was always listening to CEOs. i was reading t- uh, 10ks and s1s and seeing how CEOs were positioning things and there's just some ultimate satisfaction and for me it's not about the power or the responsibilities around I even talk about it in my title, Chief Enablement Officer. It's really around enabling people to be their best and watching them thrive. We had this employee the other day who slacked me. He's like, "Hey Ted, it's he's a sales rep. He's like, Ted, because of this great year I had, you've been able to help pay for this new home I just bought, and he was able oh. to go buy this new home. And just so rewarding getting that Slack message from. Him. And so that's that's the rewarding part of of the job, and that's something I love doing. It's just. The leadership portion of it. I'm not perfect at it. I'm always trying to learn. (laughs) I learn from mentors, but but it's one big part of the, the the role that I really love today.
0: Oh, I love that. I love that so much. Thank you for sharing that. So thank you so much for joining me, Ted. As always, it's a pleasure to connect with you and speak to you. And I just feel like I'm super, super appreciative of just all of the insights, learnings. I think there's lots of good tips here and lots of good advice. And I'm super excited to see what's next for WorkRamp.
1: Awesome. Thanks for for having me, Rosalind.
0: Thank you.